Listener Production. Hi, Katrina Blau is here. In this episode of The Briefing, a pretty amazing conversations about the ways that you, me, all of us can better face our mental health problems. It's about truly listening to somebody who's struggling, sitting with the pain, even though that often goes against our instincts. I think for the large majority of people, we know that anxiety and depression are the two most common mental ill health issues. A lot of that can be reduced significantly by helping people learn how to listen and care from the heart, not the head. That theory that the way out is through often sitting with the pain is the hardest thing, but it works. Antoinette and Tom speak with Mitch Wallace, a mental health expert who's devoting his life to changing the way we think about mental health, connection and conversation. He's a pretty amazing guy. That is coming up in the second half of the podcast. But first, Eleanor Harrison-Dengate is here with the headlines. It is Wednesday, December 14. More detail has emerged about the Queensland massacre that left two police officers dead along with an innocent bystander and the three offenders. The Queensland Police Commissioner saying the four officers had no idea what they would find when they went to the Wyambula property to check on a missing persons case. So they were quite comfortable about going um, out to the property and in fact from what I understand quite jovial and you know having fun with each other. For us this was a standard job. That's Katarina Carroll on the ABC there. So now we know that they were ambushed immediately on arrival. 29-year-old Rachel McCrow and 26-year-old Constable Matthew Arnold were both killed. The other two police managed to take cover and retreat. The offenders then lit a fire to flush one of them out. Constable Keely Bruff, the only officer remaining unhurt, called for backup while texting her loved ones saying she thought that it actually might be her time to go. That's so heartbreaking. She and Constable Randall Kirk were later saved and taken to Chinchilla Hospital. The fire attracted a neighbour, 58-year-old Alan Dare, who was killed when he tried to investigate the source of the gunfire. We've since learned that he's a grandfather. Uh, the men responsible for the deadly ambush have been identified as Nathaniel Train, a former school principal, his brother Gareth and Stacey Train, a high school teacher. So Gareth had actually been posting conspiracy theories and writing about his mistrust of police online, including that the Port Arthur massacre was a false flag operation to disarm the Australian population and that he was arc homesteading for the past five years to prepare for tomorrow. All three were later killed in a police siege that went for six hours. So flags at police station across Queensland have been flying at half-mast in tribute. Also, Eleanor, in Brisbane, where I live, all of the monuments have been lit up white and blue. It's incredibly moving and beautiful. Uh, investigators now have the very grim task of going through the body-worn camera footage from the officers at the scene to piece together exactly what happened. A former Western Australian police officer has received a 30-year prison term for drugging and raping 13 women over 12 years. Perthman Adrian Moore attacked all but one of the women while serving as a police officer. 
He met most of the victims through dating websites before spiking their drinks and then assaulting them when they were incapable of consenting. Yeah, so Moore also kept recordings and videos of him assaulting the women. So this was used in the trial and that led to the jury to ask for immediate counselling because the material was just so disturbing. Moore will have to serve 28 years before he can be released. Now, this is believed to be the highest sentence ever handed down in WA for sexual offending. It was really quite intense. The judge calling more misogynistic, depraved and sadistic. I mean, I'm not going to go into the detail here, but uh, if you're interested in some pretty intense true crime, look it up. A compensation settlement has been reached between the federal government and Brittany Higgins, but how much it is, is staying confidential. The former Liberal staffer's legal team announced they've reached a deal after just one day of mediation. The settlement comes after Higgins gave notice she would sue former Liberal ministers Linda Reynolds and Michaelia Cash, as well as the Commonwealth, for about $3 million. This comes after the sexual assault trial of Liberal staffer Bruce Lerman was dropped earlier this month because of Higgins' mental health. Lerman has maintained his innocence and he's believed to be considering civil remedies for loss of reputation and employment. Our female swimmers have broken a world record overnight with our most successful Olympian ever, Emma McKeon, leading Australia's 4x100 relay team to gold at the World Swimming Championships. It's McKeon. She's powering to the wall. The Aussies are going to win it for the first time and they've broken the world record. What a swim by Australia's golden girl. Oh, what an incredible effort, that call on nine. The Aussies were sitting 0.98 seconds behind the lead in third before McKeon charged home in just under 50 seconds to secure a spectacular comeback win. What an incredible, incredible swim. Oh, it's so worth having a watch of it. I was watching it this morning and it's just, it's exactly what you want from a swimming race, from any race where the Aussies are coming from behind and just romp home in the, in, you know, the final <laughs> minute. Oh, it's just, just, you know, that's why you watch this kind of stuff. Yeah, that is, you know, Australians love to be an underdog and honestly, we make the best comebacks ever. Uh, the US and Canada came second and third in that one. All right, Eleanor, thanks for joining us for the headlines. We'll leave you there because Tom and Antoinette are about to jump in and they're going to talk about how having better conversations could lead to better mental health. So more Aussies have mental health problems and each year more taxpayer dollars is spent trying to fix it and us And the figure is more than $10 billion a year. But is more money the silver bullet solution? Or does our approach to mental health need a complete rethink? Well, Mitch Wallace, the guy we're about to speak to, has some really interesting views on this. He's really focusing on what we can do in our personal lives to help each other out and where that fits in with the the bigger system around mental health that the government's involved with. So Mitch is the founder of an organisation called Heart on My Sleeve, which is a global mental health movement. Mitch, thanks so much for joining us. Look, we are talking about mental health a lot more than ever, and we're spending a whole lot more money than ever. So surely these are positive steps, aren't they? More money doesn't necessarily mean more solutions. I think we're sometimes throwing this funding at the wrong type of interventions. And we can see that as evident by anyone right now who's trying to seek help in the professional system, waiting three months to see a psychiatrist. 
So if it's not going to the medical end, then where is it going? Well, it must be going to the early intervention and prevention, but yet the mental health stats are getting worse. And even on that side of things, so often we feel as if we're trying to be fixed, if we're, if we're feeling anxious or depressed. So I think it's not only where is the money going, it's the type of intervention we use. And if you're supporting someone going through a mental health issue, I cannot overstate the importance of just sitting in it with someone. Honestly, 95% of the time, someone is looking for your care and connection, not your advice. And we feel negligent if we don't impart the perfect piece of wisdom, but it's just not what they're going to get better with. So that's what the counselling's supposed to do, right? To sit with the pain. So if someone is getting a subsidised counselling session, in theory, that's what's happening, isn't it? That's correct. But they've done studies around why does counselling work, even in a clinical therapeutic setting, not just human to human. And what they've shown is that for the most part, there is asterisk to certain types of diagnosis. But for the most part, it didn't matter whether a patient did cognitive behavioural therapy, dialectical behavioural therapy, acceptance and commitment therapy, insert intervention. What was more of a predictor of a therapeutic outcome in counselling was the quality of the relationship formed between counsellor and patient more than the intervention used, i.e. how seen, heard and understood someone was, was literally the thing that got them better, which shows us two things. A, listening is the therapeutic part of a connection, Mm. not advice. And B, people have an innate self-regulating healing capacity within them. They just need the grounds and the context to create the space and they can get better on their own. Okay, so, so what you're suggesting, to put it simply, is if we were all better listeners, that we could help mitigate or solve a whole bunch of the mental health problems. Like, that seems like a big thing to take on as like regular people. But a cheaper way. Yeah, sure, <laughs> sure. Not only do I think that, I believe that so much I would die for it. Right. And you are someone who's nearly died when you've gone through and you've had, you know, suicidal ideations and you yourself have experienced really poor mental health. Correct. When you are at that acute stage, do you believe that that person-to-person contact is enough to pull you through? Yes. Oh, it is the life raft that will keep you afloat until some of the other interventions will do their job. But the interventions can't intervene unless there is a life raft keeping you afloat. You use the word belief. Belief and mindset will overcome almost defy physics. I know for me that when I'm in my darkest hours, when I was, there was no breathing technique, there was no juice cleanse, there was no holiday, there was no intervention that was going to get me out of that straight away. All I had was my mum staring into my eyes saying, I love you, you can do this. Because I did not believe that. And it was through her holding that confidence, that space and that unconditional love that I ended up being able to find that within myself. And I, and I say, hey, thank you so much. You got me out of this. And she, she always says, no, you did this. So what you're saying is something I've heard spoken about a, a lot more over the last few years is, is really this focus on or this realisation how crucial human connection is about not feeling alone in these moments, particularly when you're doing it tough. Now, we started this conversation saying, well, the government's doing more than ever, spending more money, the more clinical solutions. You're talking about a much more personal connection that we should all work harder on. Yes, and to Tony's point earlier, we're busy. 
So, okay, so Mitch, if you're saying that the answer is we all need to listen more and love each other up and just sing Kumbaya, how are we going to do that in our society? It's actually not going from I need to sit down and be everyone's counsellor now and spend three hours the moment says someone says I'm not okay. Literally, it's the difference between three seconds of instead of just firing back a solution or giving a chipper remark or she'll be right, is just letting it land and mm. saying, wow, that's a lot. Or thank you for sharing that. That little moment, that window can change if not save a life. I understand that those moments when you're in uh, those really difficult, difficult times, and I've been there too, um, having someone there to support you is crucial. And one thing about having an enormous, you know, a big fat ethnic family was that I was surrounded by people in my darkest times. So yes, that probably got me through the first couple of weeks. But what has continued to get me through is a psychologist, a psychiatrist, medication, exercise, a whole raft of things. And so I understand the importance of those critical first moments, but that alone, when you're really unwell, is not going to help you because I don't think the conversation on human connection alone is going to solve mental health problems. Well, you would be defying a lot of research by some of the leading studies in the world that says the opposite, that human connection is scientifically proven to be the greatest coping tool and resilience factor in mental health, period. So would you suggest then that a whole bunch of people who are on medication may not need medication if they had better human connection? Um, Potentially, but it's not that black and white. We're not saying that you need to trade off interventions, that you need to pick one and only choose one. If I had to pick one for everyone, yeah, I would choose human connection um, because loneliness is a absolute pandemic. We know the impact on physical mortality rates of loneliness, et cetera, et cetera, COVID lockdowns, blah, blah, blah. But I think the kicker is that more connection isn't the answer because then we're just going to end up, we're throwing money at more connection. It's more towards a specific type of connection, a connection that is gentler and slower and more heartfelt, more human. So I guess we're trying to piece together this whole spectrum of reaction, intervention, understanding of mental health from the very second-by-second interpersonal moments that you're talking about through to, say, uh, emergency intervention at a hospital. Are you saying we mostly need to do more work on this interpersonal level, our personal relationships in our lives and the way we stop listen, sit with the pain, or are you also making some points about the way the actual system of intervention needs to change? Both. I'm a big fan of 80-20. So I think for the large majority of people, we know that anxiety and depression are the two most common mental ill health issues. A lot of that can be reduced significantly by helping people learn how to listen and care from the heart, not the head. In our personal spheres. In our personal spheres. That would reduce the burden of anxiety and depression significantly. Then for complex and or crisis issues, medical interventions are needed. And Tony, similar to to your situation, I'm someone who has been through anxiety and depression and the, the usual stuff. I've also been someone who's faced suicidal ideation, OCD to the point of psychosis, all this other stuff. So I know that sometimes acute wrenches and tools are needed the higher Mm. you get. There's a a lot Australia is doing, which is progressing us forward and a huge appetite for us to make a change. But there's the nuances is what's going to set us free. 
It's not more connection. It's more of the right type of connection. It's not just more crisis support getting into people into hospital beds. It's funding into the right types of research. It's getting psychiatrist availability increased and all that type of thing. What do we need to do to, to educate regular people to do more work and to do better? As someone who does that every day, stand in front of crowds, whether it's a keynote talk or in a workshop, people are very receptive to this message. Um, most of the time it's not because they don't want to, it's just they don't have the education. The moment you tell them, hey, you don't need to fix someone, just learn how to sit in it a little bit more. They're like, really? I can do that. It's going to take a little bit of rewiring, but I'm all in. Mm. And I'm like, cool, because this is the global warming of the health industry and it's taking more lives than anything between 1945, so we don't have a choice. So I'm glad you're in. <laughs> One word I'd love to pick up on there, rewiring. Yeah. Um, it's not in our natural instinct to sit with the pain, is it? We want to fix things. You're correct. We are a pain yeah. avoidant species, neurobiologically. Um, the brain has a very strange definition of safe. It actually doesn't care if we're happy. It cares if we're safe. And that's why we go to jobs that we hate and stay in relationships that are toxic because at least they're deemed as familiar. We have a negativity bias built in five to one. Five positive emotions to outweigh one negative emotion. That's why you can sit in a performance review with your boss and they spend like 59 minutes telling you how awesome you are and then the last 60 seconds say, just don't be late to meetings in future mm. and you walk out thinking you're getting fired. So the brain is constantly trying to avoid pain which makes it very hard when someone's opening up to you disclosing mm. their problems. Due to what's called mirror neurons in the brain, you literally feel that with them. You're feeling bad. Now I have to feel bad. This is a whole crappy situation. Let's make this go away. But that's where the magic is. That is exactly where the magic happens. When you realise that dangling your feet in the mud is more effective than grabbing their hand and wrenching them away from it, your whole approach to supporting someone will change. You need to sit in the mud with them. Yes, you need to sit but in the mud. we don't like them. to get dirty. We don't. <laughs> we don't. And, well and I think as a society, we're programmed for certainty, for control. Yeah. And um, the honest answer is the way out of this mental health mess is going to be messy. It's going to take a lot of courage. We have to have the courage to feel and be real with each other and have some awkward, uncomfortable conversations for literally the future of the next generation. What do we need to do to help this shift happen? Go to therapy, work on yourself, so therefore you can create more room to be able to be there for other people and find out what insecurities and stories you're telling yourself that's preventing you from showing up for others. Second thing is mindfulness. Mindfulness gives you the self-awareness in order to become aware of thoughts and therefore have a choice as to whether you want to continue down that route or rewire, which is, oh, I went to problem solve. Do I still want to do mm. that? Mindful moment. No, I'm going to sit in and listen. And the third thing would be uh, there's a ton of courses out there, my charities one, Heart on My Sleeve included, which will literally break down every single thing you need to know of how to go from confused to a confident emotional ally. That was Mitch Wallace, who is the founder of Heart on My Sleeve. He has also studied clinical psychology at Columbia University in New York. I don't know, Tom, do you think it's as easy as it sounds? I think he makes an awesome point. I, I actually do think that if we all got that message and truly understood it and we could do more of that real listening and sitting with the pain in our personal mm. lives, I actually think it would help us a lot and also possibly reduce the burden on the mental health system because after all, this is a preventative mm. measure. So it's a great message and it's right for the moment. And I think we could only be having this conversation on the building blocks of what we've already done in, say, the mm. last 20 years, got a proper understanding of, of what conditions like depression and anxiety, you know, 
really are. And I think it's really interesting for so often with with major issues, we, we look to governments and institutions and go, fix this. Um, and this is something that we should be kind of looking at ourselves and saying, what can we do to fix this? But if you or anyone you know needs help, the number for Lifeline is 13 11 14. That's it from us for the briefing today. Thank you so much for joining us. On tomorrow's episode, we're going to be talking about some info that came out earlier this week showing the gender pay gap is widening. We will find out why. Listener.